economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today in our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Andrew Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right, we're excited to have a guest today. We have Dr. David Church from Nazarene Bible College. I met him at our ACBSP conference, which is an accreditation conference. I have to admit, not one of my favorite conferences because we're not talking about economics and all the strange stuff that we do with econ, but it's a lot of fun and it's a good group of people. And you've now taken a leadership position with that that we might talk about. So Dave had gone to Kettering University, pastoral ministries, industrial engineering at Purdue for a master's degree. And finally, a PhD in leadership research and policy from University of Colorado, and that was in 2012. 36 years with General Motors and sprinkling in some pastoring as you went through that. So Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about your journey on getting to Nazarene Bible College. Wow. Seems like a strange uh, place for a business guy. Right. So I grew up in a small town in Indiana first uh, one of my family to get a bachelor's degree. I was blessed the week I got out of high school to be hired by General Motors. Oh, really? And they had a co-op program where you would go to class for six weeks and then you'd go work in a factory somewhere for six weeks, <laughs> back and forth. And while you were in the factory, somebody else sat in your seat. So there were two groups swapping back and forth. You had to do that for four and a half years and then write a thesis that saved General Motors money to get your bachelor's degree. So by the time you got done with that, you had seen every part of the business and they weren't about to turn loose of you because they had too much invested in you and you knew a lot about the business. That, of course, is a springboard towards all kinds of things management related. Because if you know that much about the business and you've been spending four and a half years with a group of folks that are now your best friends in business, you drag each other everywhere you go, right? So from this small town in Indiana, I wound up being plant manager for GM in Sao Paulo, Brazil for three years, wound up being introduced to Dr. Deming, you may or may not know. He was the person that taught TQM to the Japanese, and if I'm not mistaken, still the highest quality award in Japan that's nationally televised every year is the Deming Award. I got to spend seven years with him, and because somewhere in there I had uh, gone back to school and become a pastor and was bivocational, I got to do a homily at his death, and uh, so in the business world, those days with Deming and the TQM movement has quite a bit of capital. And TQM is total quality management, right? Right. right. So it was really a life-changing event because in those days, car manufacturing really produced a lot of junk. (laughs) I remember the days when we used to push cars off the end of the line that wouldn't start and 
load them onto trucks and say to the dealer, you get them running. <laughs> uh, so those are the kind of quality <laughs> issues we had in those days. And of course, anything made in Japan was junk. And, and give us a time frame. Is this yeah. early 80s when, yeah. so, when American Motors were had protections? Or we right, get into the exactly. whole tariff story and yeah. Toyota so was just far superior. you could possibly make, somebody would buy it. So you couldn't throw anything away. You were putting everything together you possibly could. Of course, that's not a good sustainability model. We learned those lessons the hard way. But back to my story. So I wound up moving through the ranks and doing all of that. And at some point, I said to myself, I probably need to leverage some of this knowledge that I've been so blessed with to help nonprofit leaders figure out what this means in their circles. So 13 years ago, I retired from Korea and came to Colorado Springs to oversee a leadership and ethics program for Nazarene Bible College and have since been moved into the vice president position for the Bible College and mostly these days get to do seminars. I don't do a lot of teaching. So So can I ask what brought you, what caused you to kind of go back to school for pastoral ministries? Was there any particular thing or was it something you always wanted to do? You know, there was a specific event in my life that drove me to ask intentionally, what is my purpose? Why am I here? What do I have to contribute? You know, I've been on this pathway of of uh, success and, you know, at least from my family circles, was seeing phenomenal success, but it didn't seem to me like we were treating people right. And I said, there's got to be a way for us to do good business, but treat people fairly and appropriately. And in those days, in the 70s and early 80s, union management issues were just awful. Strikes and, you know, all of those kind of things. So when I got involved with Dimming, we were able to change the culture of my division of General Motors to where we became the most profitable and the the union thought we were the best place to work. Hmm. So anyway, I had this epiphany that we got to find a better way. So that kind of led into all of this work with dimming and how do we change the culture and what does that look like and why can't we do both? Why can't we treat people with respect and fairly and pay a decent wage and still do what's necessary to have a sustainable, ongoing, good business? And I was blessed to be at the right place at the right time. So Yeah, it was one night that I was at a a church camp, and I was the security guard. It was like 2 o'clock in the morning, and I had this overwhelming sense that God had something different for me. So I left that place and immediately went and signed up for a Bible college while I was still finishing my master's (laughs) in industrial engineering. So I was trying to be a... (laughs) A father and do two education tracks at the same time. Wow. So I'm crazy. <laughs> so. 
when you said purpose, I couldn't help but think of John Stanko. Do you do you know who he is by chance? Does that ring any bells? Uh, not. He's written a lot on purpose, and he's affiliated with Ottawa University here. So I was just okay. curious if you had, had heard of him. Certainly can maybe introduce you to him at some point. He's oh, a great that'd guy. Be awesome. So, what are the students like at Nazarene Bible College? So, Nazarene Bible College is the Nazarene Church's ministry preparation for second career individuals. So our average age is almost 43 these days. Last year we had over a thousand students. We are fully online and we cover all USA and Canada. So there are a series of courses that are required for ordination in the Church of the Nazarene. We also offer a bachelor's in ministry. So we don't try to compete with seminary. We don't offer any master's or doctoral programs. We don't go after traditional age students. So we're, some people call us the college of the second chance. (laughs) You know, it's those folks who later in life are saying, you know, maybe there's more for me than I've seen. And they think God is calling them to a different vocation or to a bivocational situation. So it's a sweet spot where God's calling people and we're there with resources to help them figure out how to adjust their course. Your words earlier on, you were the most profitable line at GM and you kept people happy and the unions are happy. So this win-win situation, how do uh, your Bible students grab onto business or what are their thoughts of business and what, what do you see as your role with educating them on business? My desires have not been realized yet <laughs> in that regard. I came to the Bible college and in my thinking, I was saying, you know, the Bible colleges and seminaries do a really nice job on teaching folks how to exegete scripture and build a sermon. Mm -hmm. But what about their people skills and what about the conflict resolution and leadership styles and always been distressed at the MBA programs that are teaching all of our leaders that you can do it by the numbers and you just optimize the numerical outcomes and in that success. There are uh, too many other things to consider for that to be real and true and authentic. So, so I have a question because you've mentioned Deming a couple times and you usually, you know, Deming is known for workforce productivity, right? Right. Increasing the productivity of each individual worker. And it's often a criticism of Deming that people read him as advocating, I take it what you were just attacking, that just focusing on the numbers. Mm -hmm. And what I'm hearing from you is that that's a misreading of Deming. Yeah, it, it very much is a misreading of him. Deming, by the time the U.S. heard of him and knew of him, he was a cantankerous old guy. He was, he was very angry that we would not listen. And his philosophy and his theology, he was Episcopalian. And a lot of people don't know he wrote music and a lot of other things. But he was very upset at the folks that taught MBA kind of courses, teaching the outcomes by the numbers. He was all about constancy of purpose and what is your purpose and how are you going to do that? And let's use 
statistics and data to drive our decisions, recognizing that business is half science and half art. Mm -hmm. And that if you run the business by the numbers, you will fail. And I remember him hearing him say that multiple times. So he was not a run the business by the numbers kind of guy. He was constancy of purpose and the flavor of the month and, you know, going off this way to do one thing and coming back from a seminar and taking the organization in a different direction was one of actually his 14 points. The very first one was constancy of purpose toward improvement of product and service with the aim to become competitive and stay in business and provide jobs. That was his number one point of his 14 points. So that's probably shocking for some people to hear who only know the caricature of Deming. So, uh, yeah, he was an anomaly. Like I said, I got to spend seven years with him. And if I don't know if we have time for a quick story, but yeah, go for it. I was working with the city of Indianapolis, uh, Mayor Bill Hudnut, and I had worked through their purpose statement and all of that kind of stuff. And, and my president of my General Motors division convinced the mayor, I think they were in mayor mayoral transition, so it probably wasn't Bill Hudnut, but convinced the mayor and his whole staff to come to a four-day Deming seminar. And I was just so proud of myself that the whole staff and the mayor would come and sit for four days to listen to Deming. So on the Thursday evening, we go out for dinner with the mayor and Dr. Deming. And Dr. Deming sitting at the table eating his meal. And at this point, he's in his 90s and not hearing real well. So the mayor says to him, so Dr. Deming, what is your philosophy of management? <laughs> and he's been sitting in this seminar now for three days, right? <laughs> and so Dr. Deming just ignores him. And, and the mayor thinks he didn't hear him. <clears throat> so he says louder. So everybody in the restaurant can hear. So Dr. Deming, what is your theory of management? And Dr. Deming looked at him and said, stupidest damn question I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> Went back to eat and wouldn't talk to him the rest of the rest of the night. So he was he was very cantankerous in that way. If you would listen, he would help you. Mm -hmm. But if you wouldn't if listen, he didn't have the, the time to pay for you. And oh by the way, that's how he charged too, because if he came back and perceived you hadn't done what he was teaching you, then your bill was quite a bit more than that. <laughs> All right. Well, that looks like a good place for a break. When we come back, I want to talk about bringing the gospel to the world through missionary and business, as opposed to maybe some of the way we do it today. So we'll let Dave speak on that, and we'll be back in just a bit. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. Here at Ottawa, we have a new microeconomics course that's available to high school students. You can earn college credit through Ottawa University and have it count towards your high school credit if your high school allows. 
Um, or you'll just be able to transfer that to some other college uh, where you choose to go. But we hope you choose to come here. If you're looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Don't forget to check our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. Okay, so welcome back. Our cliffhanger was on bringing the gospel to the world, maybe through business as opposed to maybe planting missionaries and whatnot and helping with education and healthcare. And that, that's kind of the traditional route, right? And so you had some unique thoughts during our lunchtime talk, I thought, on how you thought maybe the most effective way might be through business. What did you mean? Well, so I'm convinced that to do efficient, effective business faith and trust are required. And so in my three years of work in China and Brazil and other places, often the lunchtime conversations would turn towards, so why are you here? And, and what, what does your faith have to do with business? And so it was an open door to talk about the purpose of my life. And particularly in some of the countries where faith is not, it's not acceptable to talk about it publicly, but when you're there and they ask, it opens doors, right? Mm -hmm. And in many of those places, you find that it's almost impossible to do business because of the corruption and the lack of trust. Yeah. So the whole idea that you can bring to folks the idea that you will never have a decent business here until you come to the place where you have some trust in each other and trust in the systems and trust in the processes. If you're always patting each other's hands, it's a matter of who's doing the most corruption. And some of the countries, quite frankly, where I've worked are never going to be rivals to the U.S. because they can't get past this issue of faith and trust in people, systems, or processes. Yeah, my wife is traveling back from Guatemala right now where corruption is right up at the top of the list, oh, and absolutely. she just told me, glad we're leaving today. Tomorrow there's an organized protest about this or that, yeah, and, right. and it just it makes it hard. We've got all these ideas on we're going to have a student trip to Guatemala and uh, go down there. She has a nonprofit that does work and helps uh, women with their fabrics and basically run a business. Right. So that's right. why this is very interesting for, for me with that. Yeah. So it's, it's my belief that Christ calls all of us in his effort to reconcile all things to him. All of us are ministers. I think the church has this wrong with this huge gap between the clergy and the laity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I encourage all the pastors I deal with these days to go have commissioning services. Go commission everybody in your congregation to go transform the world. And your job as a pastor is to provide them with training and resources to help them make that a reality. We don't pay you to do all of the ministry. We pay you to prepare a ministry. So I think... I'm hearing Martin Luther come out a little bit uh, here with... Uh, yeah. So I'm an engineer at heart, right? And so this whole idea that the church somehow can have all the answers, it's just a fabricated myth for control. So as Box used to say, all models are wrong, but some are useful 
that's the way it is in the church. And what Deming mm -hmm. taught me was while all models are wrong and some are useful, the more useful they are, the more cautious you should be of their use. So you take that and you put that on theological structures and you put it in the church and the authoritarian place. God's called us to transform the world and to bring everybody to him. He didn't call us to store up money and have authority structures to abuse people, you know, and shame on us for having the image in the rest of the world that, that we somehow, through our Christian theology, make people less than they should be when we should be helping every person be all that God designed for them to be. So the business world is about that. We're about optimizing. We're about efficiency and effectiveness. And how do you do that if you don't get people to develop to their full potential, right? So we're in this field where we can use our Christian principles to do things. And when people see us behave in those ways, suddenly that's attractive. And they want to know what it is that, why are we doing that? Because other people don't. They take advantage of them. Well, when they find out that the reason is because of our relationship with Christ, that changes everything. And so I'm of the firm conviction that God has a sense of humor and that we will find that many of the real changes in the world came through business as opposed to other structures. I kind of have a question on this line of trust that you're talking about. We actually did a podcast probably a, a few months back talking about how a lot of measures of like societal trust, even in the U.S., seem to be falling. Trust in institutions, right. trust in other people. Yes. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think somehow every structure that in my childhood we thought we could trust has somehow been undermined, you know, from the police to the clergy to the you know, all the people you're supposed to be able to come to and confide in, and you find out that they're just human like you are, right? Right. Yeah. And that we all have our besetting sins and we all have our issues. But the transformational leadership piece is we can live above that, you, mm -hmm. you know, and we can be transformed by our purpose and by the Holy Spirit to do the work that God intends us to do and that our best moments can define us as opposed to our worst moments. I have a question. So if I'm hearing you right, one of the things that you're saying is that business to really operate effectively can require faith and that that might be something that's overlooked by people in business generally. Yeah. Is there something going on in the other direction too? Is there something that people in the church community or people in the Christian community don't understand about business that, that you think they could benefit from? Yeah, I think, and this, everything I have to say comes from my experience because that's all I have, right? But I think for the most part, leadership and the clergy have gone to business to say, how do we lead? So if you want to advance in the clergy, you got to go to some MDiv or some divinity school. And what they teach you about leadership is what you get from Harvard. And I think it should be the other way around. Harvard should be coming to us and saying, you guys are the best there is on 
relationship building and helping people be all they can be, what can we learn from you? This is backwards. And it's because we haven't spent enough, in my view, we haven't invested enough of our brain cells in being learning organizations as faith-based institutions and we're more concerned about accreditation and concerned about <laughs> what somebody else says about us than we are about what God and the Bible says about us. And if we would do our job so well, they would be coming to us instead of vice versa. And so w- what we find out is that businesses or, or churches as businesses are using the MBA concepts, you know. And Deming said, no. It's not about numbers. Cash is the lifeblood of the organization, but it's not the purpose. It's not the purpose. So what is your purpose as a business? Why do you even exist? You know, businesses have to struggle with that. Monopolies don't. And churches act like monopolies. They don't act like businesses because they haven't thought through who they are called to be and what they should be. So when you brought that up, I couldn't help but think of Milton Friedman here. So is it okay for an owner to have a purpose of, I want to make money? Well, you know, that goes back to the trust and the faith piece, right? It takes, one of my colleagues says it takes faith to do business and it takes faith to do religion. You know, you're going to invest money someplace based on, what you think is going to be your return. Well, the return is based on how we set that up. What return are you looking for? You know, this is the most philanthropic country in the whole world, as best I can tell by the numbers. That doesn't happen because people say, oh, it's all about money. Money's required to make transactions and whatever, but that's not the transformational piece, right? Yeah. And so... All over this globe, we have people who do things for free and for faith and for their own internal purposes that you could never pay them to do the things. So how does that throw off this whole idea that it's all about money? Mm -hmm. It's not. Yeah. Well, I think if those people dig deep, even if they're... They want to make money because they want material things. They want a big house. They want a fancy car. Whatever, whatever it is, there's the money is the medium of exchange to get something else that's their purpose, perhaps. And they might find those material things fleeting. And eventually, as they mature, I'm thinking about the young 20-something that wants some material things, and then that purpose can change. But I think what Milton Friedman's insight was, is that even if they're purpose is materialistic or or very shallow, they could still do a lot of good with what they did by pursuing that jobs that they created, the value that they created for the product that they sell, you know, all of that. I guess I was going to ask a question based off this. And the, the question, which I'll set up, but I'll tell it to you first, is basically to what extent do you think like a, a trust but verify culture, do you think that undermines the importance of trust? And so a good example of this is a lot of economics is about basically how can we structure institutions in such a way 
that we don't need to rely on trusting their good intentions, but instead we could, you know, it would work even if they had bad intentions. So the, the invisible hand is an example of this. Adam Smith said, you know, because of selfishness, you know, we can still right. expect some good. And a lot of the industrial organization economics literature is about, you know, how, how can we avoid problems of trust? So in economics, vertical integration, for example, is commonly explained as a way to prevent yourself from having to trust another company who you're very reliant on. Instead, you just make them part of your own company. So do you think this undermines trust in businesses? Does it support it, this sort of view that, you know, we can build things in a way that we don't have to use trust? This gets me off into an entirely different subject. Sure. So when Dr. Deming, his last few years, and there's not been much published about this that I know of, but he was talking about the theory of profound knowledge. And what is knowledge? What is it that we trust? We think if you have knowledge, you can trust that. But the statistician Bach says, no, every model is wrong. Well, when we start thinking about knowledge and what do we know and what do we trust, what do we not trust, it only takes one piece of data to disprove a theory. But thousands and thousands of pieces of data don't prove it's true. So all the things we think we know and are think are true, flat earth, whatever kinds of things, that one piece of data can change our mind, right? So how do you trust in something that one piece of data can change your mind tomorrow? So it's a, it's a fickle kind of thing here because if we are diligent about learning and we are lifelong learners as opposed to having 40 years of one year repeated 40 times, you know, <laughs> that kind of concept, we have to acknowledge that the things we trust today may not be trustworthy tomorrow. Sure. So how do you play that into the process? And I believe that the continual improvement process of the total quality management TQM piece brings a framework that allows us to deal with that without eroding the trust of our relationship. Mm -hmm. Because what I believe about you tomorrow and what you say is truth tomorrow may be somewhat different based on one new piece of data that you got. So how do we keep that relationship? We need a framework. We need a, a way to do that. And TQM, the Malcolm Baldridge kinds of awards and those kind of things give us a, a forum to be able to say, we will know more tomorrow than we know today. And we can still trust one another and still do business because, and whether that business is theological in nature or it's the widgets you know, we can still do that. Sure. So maybe uh, one last question. We're getting close to the end of time, but uh, we can let it go too if other things come up. We've been trying to fix the world here on the podcast every once in a while. <laughs> and so I'm curious what your fix would be for the trust factor. One of the things Peter argued is basically just stay local. Don't let the other stuff nationally or otherwise bother you too much do what you can with your local relationships i might be putting words in his mouth but that was kind of the idea is to just stay with what you know and who you know other people might say no let's turn it we got to start at the top you know that's where the problems lie in washington dc or whatever what's your thoughts on that in terms of rebuilding maybe trust here in the united states or otherwise well so my framework for leadership is that 
in all the nations I've worked in and all the places that I've worked in all the organizations, I can't find the person who thinks they are the leader. Everybody I talk to says, yeah, but you don't understand. I have to work in this system and it puts all these constraints on me. Mm -hmm. You know, you go to Congress and there's how many ever folks have been elected there and they say, well, I can't really do this because of this, this and this, you know. So every what I'm finding is that everybody has some excuse for why they can't change their world. And so I believe and what I have taught for the last many years is that you have to be courageous and throw out an umbrella for all of those that are in your sphere of influence and say, it's okay, it's safe to do certain things that are in alignment with our purpose. And you have to be the one willing to take the flack for that. Sometimes that's easier than others because in an organization, there's an org chart that says, this is the person responsible. In your family, it's not that clean. In your (laughs) church, it's not necessarily that clean. So what I'm coming to as I get older here is that it starts with me. And I'm convinced, I've convinced myself, or the data has, I, I would like to think the data has, but... I'm convinced that in all of our knowledge and training and theology and all of that, we don't do as good a job of teaching people who they are as we should. And that on a daily basis, we don't have, I don't see people with processes in place where they gather data and reflect on self-improvement. If all of us were growing and improving towards the objective of being what God designed us to be, the whole system gets raised, right? But I don't know how to raise it from the top. Yeah. There are times when there are people who are big enough that people want to follow and they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're bigger than life and we emulate them and all that, that can happen. I'm not that person, right? So that, I just have to set that all aside, but I can do that for myself. So I'm more and more going back to some of the old things from the theologians and the church fathers about our personal relationship with God on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And are we setting systems in place that help me reflect whether I made better choices yesterday than I did the day before yesterday? And am I treating you with more respect than I did yesterday? The image of God in you should be a reflection that helps me to grow regardless of who you are, what color your skin is, what your culture is, or what your experiences are. Yeah. Well put, yeah. Instead of it being, it's a lot easier when it's not about me, 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 what am I going to do, but rather what's me and Christ going to do today, right? Right. And right. The, the peace of mind that comes along with that. So. All right, any last words? All right, well, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Alberta University. Dave Church, thank you very much for joining us today. It was great and appreciate it. So if you like what you hear, be sure to uh, find us online and give us a nice rating. Uh, That helps other people find our podcasts. Other than that, be fruitful, multiply. Thanks.